It's Thursday, July 15th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has released draft legislation aimed at decriminalizing marijuana at the federal level. Called the Cannabis Administration and Opportunity Act, it would remove weed from the Controlled Substances Act and begin regulating and taxing it. It would still give states the power to set their own laws and would also expunge nonviolent cannabis-related arrests. Natalie Fertig, federal cannabis policy reporter at Politico, joins us for what to expect in the marijuana debate. Next, drug overdose deaths have risen sharply in the country by 30% in 2020, with over 93,000 deaths. A large driver of those deaths were the result of the synthetic opioid fentanyl, as it has been frequently mixed into other drugs. The pandemic also played a role in this as people who were receiving treatment or wanted it had difficulty accessing it early on. Isolation and other life disruptions also fueled the uptick. Betsy McKay, senior writer at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for the rise in overdose deaths. Finally, public health officials are once again worried about super spreader events as we see lagging vaccination rates and rising COVID cases. With less mask wearing and social distancing, people are going out more and attending larger gatherings. Studies have shown that 10% of people infected with COVID could be responsible for 80% of the spread. Denise Chow, science reporter at NBC News, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. What this bill does is we decriminalize at the federal level, but we don't require states to legalize. Joining us now is Natalie Ferdig federal cannabis policy reporter at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Natalie. Hey, thanks for having me. Senator Chuck Schumer has proposed legislation to decriminalize marijuana at the federal level. It's a a draft bill called the Cannabis Administration and Opportunity Act. So it's going to remove marijuana from the Controlled Substances Act. It would let the government begin regulating and taxing marijuana. And it's also going to give states the option to set their own marijuana laws. But You know, this is going to be a a pretty difficult debate. Uh, He pretty much needs to convince everybody, some Democrats in his own party, Republicans, and even President Joe Biden. So, Natalie, what are we seeing in this uh, draft bill? Yeah, I mean, the bill is really interesting. A lot of the bill is the same as the MORE Act, which passed the House last December. But then this bill really fleshes a lot of it out. So you mentioned that states get to set their own rules and regulations regarding cannabis. That includes not legalizing cannabis. And that was true of the MORE Act, but it wasn't really spelled out in detail. This bill spells that out in detail. And, you know, after talking to a lot of Republican senators last month on Capitol Hill, to me, that seems like a very obvious sort of outstretched hand to Republican senators who are easily swayed or more easily swayed on the state's rights aspect of cannabis legalization than some of the criminal justice aspects that are kind of why Democrats come to the space. So it's really obvious that this bill is trying to bridge both worlds and find a space that everyone can come to an agreement on. Whether or not they're going to do that is what remains to be seen. Um, We've talked to Democrats and Republicans, me and my colleagues, over the last two months And, you know, we've talked to Democrats who've said that they are not on board with federal legalization, whether or not this bill is kind of a a mild step below full federal legalization, which wouldn't allow states to kind of pick and choose their own adventure. 
So maybe this is more palatable to those Democrats who said they weren't on board with the kind of previous concept. But I mean, that's going to be the question, right? right? We've also talked to Republicans and I don't have a single Republican right now who has committed to saying, yes, I would vote to fully change America's cannabis laws, even Republicans who come from legal states. So it's going to be an uphill battle. Has anybody signaled what the holdup is? Why don't they want to decriminalize this on the federal level? Public opinion, obviously, that's something completely different. But public opinion, you know, says that that they're open to that. that The public wants that. More than 60 percent of all Americans are in favor of federally legalizing or decriminalizing marijuana, including 49 or 50 percent of Republicans, depending on the poll that you look at in this last year. It is a popular policy amongst the American voters and the American public. But I've talked to a lot of strategists and pollsters over the last few years, and they say that it's very common for Congress just to move slower than the American public on something like this. And the only time we've seen the American public change so quickly on an issue one strategist told me was was with gay marriage. And that did not necessarily require something federal to happen aside from, uh, well, it was the Supreme Court, right? It wasn't Congress passing a law that changed that. So this is a much more complex thing where you've got taxes, you've got regulations, you've got grant programs, expungements. You know, do we let states decide? Do we not let states decide? What do we do with drugged driving? What do we do with access for minors? How do we make sure that legal weed isn't going from a legal state into an illegal state and boostering their illicit market? There's so many more complex things to think about than just who are you marrying, right? It's like a, a, a fully regulated industry. So it just requires so many different things for people to disagree on. Right. You mentioned two things, if you could expand on uh, a little bit, though. Expunging past arrests and convictions would also be part of this bill. And then uh, you mentioned doing research into this. There would be mechanisms for grants to be set up so that we could do more research into this, uh, you know, drugged driving. But beyond that, for a long time, researchers Mm -hmm. said that they want to do studies and they can't because obviously it's illegal at the federal level. Immediately by removing the federal penalties on cannabis, you immediately make it much easier to research because researchers do not then have to go through the very complex controlled substances research process of of getting an exception or a um, not an exception, but a permit to or a license to research controlled substances. So that would be easy immediately. They're then also providing funding and directly asking the National Institutes of Health and a couple other federal agencies to do research or to commission research into drug driving, into the impact that cannabis could have on um, the human brain. And we know that there's a lot of impacts, that there's potential for help, you know, maybe with PTSD, but there's also potential where it could hurt the human brain with youth ages 15 to 25 and the potential that it could cause psychosis in some people. There's so many questions that there in like, how does it impact the human brain, that that's something that they really want to put money toward researching. There's also, you know, you mentioned the expungements, and that's a whole other side of this that's very, very important to a lot of lawmakers and actually has a little bit more Republican support than I think some of the other portions of the bill does, where they're looking at this and saying, if this is something that we're going to decriminalize, we're going to say it's not wrong to do this anymore, then what do we do with the people who have criminal records for it? What do we do with the people who currently are serving any type of sentence for this? And the bill would immediately 
or within a year expunge federal records. And then past that, any state that legalizes cannabis can apply for these grants that will help the state fund record expungement. It's obviously takes manpower and, you know, maybe a coding program. It it takes money to expunge records. And so they don't want this to the impetus for paying for it to be on the people who have those records. And they don't want to discourage states from doing it, but that are like, where do we find the funding for this? So there are grants for that. And then there's a whole other set of grants that states can use to create equity programs, but they can't qualify for those grants unless they go through the process of expunging records. So there's like a couple different layers of record expungements, both incentives and then the mandated federal ones in the bill. Natalie Fertig, federal cannabis policy reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Over the next several months, the deaths just really took off. And so there's kind of a perfect storm of two twin epidemics in this country that have unfortunately fed off each other and and left us in a really bad place. Joining us now is Betsy McKay, senior writer at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Betsy. Thank you for having me. We have some not so good news to talk about. You know, over the pandemic, obviously, it was a tough time for a lot of people. It's a big disruption to our lives. There was a lot of isolation going on. But we're learning now that something that was already a problem before just got exacerbated by it also, drug overdose deaths. They soared nearly 30% in 2020, driven largely by fentanyl. It's like synthetic heroin, basically. So, uh, Betsy, what are we seeing in these new numbers that we're getting? Well, it's a dramatic, dramatic increase. It's the largest increase in at least three decades, but probably more, probably in the history of the country. And now, you know, last year there were more than 93,000 people who died of a drug overdose. As you said, you know, it's driven primarily by kind of a proliferation of fentanyl into the drug supply. Illicit fentanyl is mixed with a lot of drugs. And so, you know, many times people who are using a drug don't realize that it's actually more powerful than they know because fentanyl is in it. And so, you know, it's been a growing problem for the past few years. Deaths started ticking up in late 2019. But after March 2020, which if you remember was when the pandemic really struck here and and restrictions kicked in and people started losing jobs and there was a lot of social isolation, over the next several months, the deaths just really took off. And so there's kind of a perfect storm of two twin epidemics in this country that have unfortunately fed off each other and and left us in a really bad place. Let's talk a little bit more about how the pandemic affected this part of it. Part of it was people that wanted to get treatment or needed treatment. They couldn't get it in the early months of the pandemic. That's right. Clinics either closed or went online. People were having trouble even if they wanted to go in person, you know, knowing where to go or being able to get there. So it cut off service for some people or people face disruption. Treatment providers say, and most places did move to offering therapy sessions on Zoom or, you know, other telehealth platforms. That doesn't necessarily work for everybody. They either need the face-to-face contact or they just don't have the technology to do it. People who lost their jobs and lost their livelihoods, some of them ended up homeless and on the street. It's harder to get into treatment there. And then, honestly, the 
big disruption to lives, you know, deaths of family and friends, losing a job, losing a home, that produces a kind of trauma. And when you think about it, people who are trying to come out of addiction are looking for need stability and need support. And just we're kind of getting hit from, from all sides. So we have these numbers now, these unfortunate numbers now. What are public health officials, what are lawmakers saying that they want to do about this? How are they trying to get a handle on this? Well, it's clear that what's been done to date is not working. You know, people I talked to said just need a much bigger, much bolder approach, much more comprehensive. The federal government has made it easier over the past year and a half for people to get treatment. They've removed a lot of barriers, but there's a lot more they need to remove. I mean, some of the things cited are removing the limits on the number of people a a physician can prescribe treatment to. You know, they can prescribe pain pills more widely in some cases than they can actually treatment for addiction to opioids. And the other thing is making treatment much more widely available in clinics and and pharmacies so that you don't have to go through lots of bureaucratic hurdles. And the final thing, and it's a pretty big thing, is that lawsuits that state and um, local governments uh, have filed against the opioid manufacturers and distributors seeking a cost to recoup their costs for dealing with the opioid pandemic. Some of those settlements are starting to be made. Altogether, state and local governments are seeking more than $26 billion from opioid manufacturers and distributors around the country. So some of those trials are just getting underway and some of the settlements are starting to happen. And the idea is that this money would be used for treatment, prevention, and other programs to help deal with with addiction. Betsy McKay, senior writer at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. It's nice to be here. There was a church camp in South Texas that eventually led to at least 125 cases. And there was another summer camp in central Illinois that had 85 infections. So this is what we're talking about, these sort of explosions of infection. Joining us now is Denise Chow, science reporter at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Denise. Thank you for having me. The Delta variant continues to be a cause for worry among public health officials. But the other thing that's coming into focus again is uh, super spreader events, you know, as States are kind of fully reopened now. In a lot of places, there's no mask rules anymore. People are socially distancing less. And, you know, we're seeing concerts and other outdoor events and, and, and big events just start happening again. These super spreader events are coming into focus again. Denise, tell us a little bit about what we're seeing and the, and the worry with these again. Yeah, absolutely. So actually, super spreader events kind of have been happening throughout the pandemic. It's just that when cases are a lot lower, as they have been prior to now, you don't have as many opportunities to have these really large outbreaks. So the reason that feels like a lull is because we were having sort of lower case counts across the country. And now sort of we're seeing that tick back up. And as a result, we are seeing some of these larger outbreaks, as you mentioned. And the thing about super spreader events is that they can kind of happen anywhere where there's large gatherings and where people are sort of vulnerable. So if they're not vaccinated, if they're hanging out with other unvaccinated people. And it's really sort of these events that are of such concern because they're kind of like the spark that leads to an inferno. And so all of a sudden in an area, you may go from having just a few cases to then exploding into sort of hundreds of cases, as we've seen in 
mean, a couple of recent examples is there was a church camp in South Texas that eventually led to at least 125 cases. And there was another summer camp in central Illinois that had 85 infections. So this is what we're talking about, these sort of explosions of infection. Yeah. And just not just in the United States, internationally, also, you mentioned the article, there was a disco party that was held uh, in the Netherlands that had about 160 cases tied to it. And uh, even the Mexico pageant, I think half of the contestants ended up testing positive there. So, you know, it's happening all over the place. And obviously, you know, in pockets of the country where vaccination rates are low, this is an especially concerning thing. Yes, absolutely. And like you said, there was international examples as well, but it's not just these big events. It's not just the big parties and and the big stadium events. It's also there was a birthday party in Australia where 24 people were infected and, and the people that were not infected happened to be the ones that were vaccinated. And so these things are sort of the events that really seed the virus in communities. And that's why they're of such concern, because then it sort of explodes exponentially. And then you get into situations where it really kind of gets into an out of control situation. You know, one of the things throughout the pandemic also that we haven't really been able to nail down why is why people are super spreaders. I think the way they kind of broke it down was about 10 percent of people infected for COVID may be responsible for about 80 percent of the spread. Yeah, this is an area of active research, and it's a, it's a kind of a big mystery still at this point. We don't really know. Scientists don't really know why some people are super spreaders and other people are not. They don't really know why not all super spreading events are created equal. There's sort of a lot for us to study, and, and scientists will be looking at this and trying to understand this for years, I suspect. But essentially, like you said, there's sort of this idea that a minority of people are responsible for majority of the spread. And that may have to do with circumstance or the environment that they're in. This is a virus that transmits through airborne particles. And so it could be that, you know, you just need to get enough people into an enclosed space, into an indoor space with a big enough gathering. Or it may be that there's some biological reason. It could be that maybe these people who are super spreaders, that they somehow have more virus in them, or it's somehow in their mucus in a different way than it is from other people. So this is sort of an area of active research and and kind of an ongoing mystery at this point. So all of this leads to the big worry that nobody wants to reimpose certain restrictions again, obviously social distancing, mask wearing, you know, nobody wants to go back to these lockdown type situations again, but these are the worries as as the Delta variant continues to spread. And, you know, human behavior is kind of one of the toughest things to control in that we're all over it. (laughs) Nobody wants to go back to that stuff and we want to have fun again and kind of get back to normal life. So that's one of the biggest things to contain right now as well. Yeah, and a lot of the experts that I've spoken to, they're not advocating to reimpose lockdowns. I don't think anybody is really for lockdowns unless it's absolutely necessary, right? These are very disruptive. There's a lot of mental health issues, economic issues that come with lockdowns. And so I don't think anybody is really saying that in order to stop this, we need to you know, have people quarantine at home again. I think the idea that you know, people that I've spoken to have said that it's changes in behavior and that can be just being extra cautious and perhaps in an area where there is a, a lot of virus circulating, where the cases are going up, that people should wear masks again. And, and maybe it's like little changes like that that can make a really big difference. And of course, the biggest change of all is just sort of doubling down on vaccination efforts. The vaccine is kind of this big, really effective wall of defense against infection and against especially these large outbreaks. And so in areas where there is lower vaccination levels, that's one of the biggest things that people can do is go and get vaccinated. Denise Chow, science reporter at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.